Welcome to the BJ Education Podcasts. My name is Pooja Shah, and today I am joined by Dr. Erlene Silva-Pule to discuss the pre-operative assessment of functional capacity, a clinical activity as anaesthetists we do every single day. Dr. Silva-Pule is an anaesthetist at the Royal Melbourne Hospital in Australia and is a research fellow at the University of Melbourne. Her PhD thesis is in examining the relationship between functional capacity, health status, and postoperative myocardial injury. She sits on the perioperative medicine committee as well. Together with Professor Jay Darval, she has written and published two excellent articles in our July and August 2022 BJ Education editions on the subjective and objective methods of pre-assessment of functional capacity. Welcome, Dr. Silvapule. Thanks, Dr. Shah. Your opening statement in one of the articles succinctly frames our thought processes when encountering patients on a daily basis, and I will read it out for our listeners. Does this patient have the physiological reserve capacity to undergo this specific surgical procedure without serious perioperative complications? A question we all try to answer repeatedly and with varying answers in certain circumstances. Now, a large proportion of anaesthetists ask patients about their ability to climb two flights of stairs, and this is generally equated to four METs. After reading your article, I realized that I don't specifically ask about the number of steps or the time frame in which this is completed. For my and our listeners' understanding, Dr. Silvapule, when do two flights of stairs actually correlate to four METs? And how does this correlate with post-operative outcomes? Yeah, so the short answer to your first question is we don't actually know exactly how many flights of stairs correspond to four mets. Now, historically, two flights of stairs have been equated with four mets. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that anyone even knows when or how this correlation actually originated, but the evidence for two flights of stairs being equal to four mets is actually quite scant. So firstly, it's important to remember that one flight of stairs can be anywhere from 18 to 22 steps, but the height of the steps can vary significantly from building to building. And with regards to how many flights actually correlate to four mets, studies in both surgical and non-surgical patients have observed two flights of stairs to correlate with a VO2 peak of anywhere from 14 to 21 mils per kilo per minute, which is equivalent to about four to 6.1 metabolic equivalents. Now, as you pointed out, the time frame in which a stair climb is completed is actually very important, as varying speeds of ascent would obviously change the VO2 peak achieved. But this is actually quite difficult to ascertain on history, so we generally don't inquire about it. Now, studies that have been done in surgical patients have established an average speed of about one step per second. So... If a patient can climb two flights of stairs in approximately 45 seconds or less, then it's likely that that individual has adequate cardiorespiratory fitness. To answer your second question regarding stair climbing ability and perioperative risk, the best evidence that we have to date has come from the study by Buse and colleagues published in, in 2021. And this study demonstrated an association between stair climbing ability and perioperative risk but only in a specific subset of patients. So in individuals with known coronary, cerebrovascular or peripheral arterial disease who are undergoing high-risk surgery 
the inability to climb two flights of stairs was significantly associated with 30-day cardiac mortality and major adverse cardio, cardiovascular events. However, amongst those same individuals undergoing low-risk surgery, there was not a significant association between poor functional capacity and post-operative cardiac complications. Uh, and finally, I just want to make one note about this. The, the ESC 2022 guidelines for preoperative cardiovascular evaluation, um, which were published just last month, uh, now in fact recommend stair climbing assessment to aid in identifying patients who would benefit from cardiac stress testing. Okay, then Dr. Silapule, if we move on to more formally validated measures such as the Duke Activity Status Index, which has been used or can be used to estimate the peak VO2 and then METs. What are the pitfalls of using the Duke Activity Status Index? And in which patients has this system been shown to provide the most accurate predictions? Yeah, so there are a couple of important limitations to using the Duke Activity Status Index or DASI. Firstly, at lower functional capacity, the conversion formula, which converts the raw DASI score to VO2 peak and then metabolic equivalence, has been found to overestimate VO2 peak considerably, particularly when functional capacity is poor. Now, in the, uh, the measurement of exercise tolerance before surgery or the METS study, which is a landmark study um, published back in, in 2018, this study found that a DASI score of 34 corresponded to a VO2 peak of 17 to 18 mils per kilo per minute, which is about five metabolic equivalents. However, if we use the conversion formula on a DASI score of 34, this formula predicts an exercise capacity of 6.9 metabolic equivalents. So there's quite a difference there. And this actually corroborates findings from other studies, which have found that the DASI conversion formula can overestimate VO2 peak and metabolic equivalents, particularly when exercise capacity is less than five METs which unfortunately is the very cohort that we're interested in. Now, this can be problematic when we're converting the DASI score to metabolic equivalence to identify individuals who may require cardiac stress testing or CPET. And by using a cutoff of formats, which actually corresponds to a DASI score of 10, um, which is quite low, we may potentially be excluding a cohort of patients who in fact require stress testing. Therefore, I, um, I, I wouldn't use the DASI conversion formula to estimate VO2 peak. If VO2 peak does need to be known for whatever reason, we would be better off using CPET for objective measurement. Secondly, um, another limitation, there have been concerns about a potentially sensitive question for some patients, which is the question about sexual relations. Now, this question has led to incomplete questionnaires, which unfortunately then precludes use of the DASI score. So the only way around this really um, that I can think of, either for the questionnaire to be interviewer administered rather than self-administered, but that could potentially be quite resource intensive. Alternatively, that question could be replaced with another activity of similar, similar metabolic cost, but obviously then the, the questionnaire would need to undergo revalidation. To answer your second question with regards to the patient population in which DASI has the highest predictive accuracy, for risk assessment, the only robust data we have has come out from the MET study, which recruited patients 40 years and over undergoing major non-cardiac surgery or with at least one risk factor for cardiac complications. 
However, most of the patients that were recruited were in fact ASA class one or two, which was a somewhat healthier cohort than intended. And this might be why the associations between DASI and post-operative cardiac complications reached marginal statistical significance. So basically we are yet to delineate a patient population in which DASI performs um, and predicts post-operative complications with high accuracy. Thank you. And I guess before we move on to objective assessments, and you've already mentioned CPET, um, would you briefly explain the relevance of the three main variables in functional capacity assessment and the perioperative risk stratification, which is mainly the VO2 peak, anaerobic threshold, and ventilatory efficiency at anaerobic threshold? So these three CPET variables are certainly very useful for assessment of functional capacity. And there are certain thresholds that are associated with poorer post-operative outcomes. Before I do go through each of those variables, though, I just wanted to point out that it's important to remember that those three variables are very good global measures of functional capacity. And whilst very useful for risk stratification, they don't delineate cardiac, respiratory or metabolic causes for, for exercise limitation. There are other CPAP variables that can be used for that. So firstly, starting off with VO2 peak, this is the peak oxygen uptake that's measured when an individual exercises to fatigue or to symptom limitation. And the VO2 peak essentially represents a patient's best effort on that day. So it is, it is effort dependent. Uh, and the VO2 peak thresholds that are associated with increased perioperative risk do vary slightly based on the, on the type of surgery. However, in general, a VO2 peak of less than 15 mils per kilo per minute, which is about 4.3 mets, is the threshold associated with increased risk of complications. Uh, now, there's a systematic review that did also find that, conversely, a VO2 peak of greater than 14 to 15 mils per kilo per minute is associated with a low likelihood of cardiorespiratory complications after non-cardiothoracic surgery. Now, uh, moving on to the anaerobic threshold, this is the oxygen uptake when the metabolism switches from aerobic to anaerobic. So basically, the anaerobic threshold signifies the point when muscle oxygen requirements exceed the capacity of the cardiorespiratory and metabolic systems to, put, to supply oxygen to exercising muscle. Now, in contrast to VO2 peak, the the anaerobic threshold is effort independent, so technically a, a more reproducible variable, but the identification within the nine panel plot is a little bit more complex. Based on studies, um, particularly earlier studies by Older and colleagues, uh, the finding is that an anaerobic threshold of less than 11 mils per kilo per minute has been accepted as a threshold associated with increased perioperative risk. Finally, the ventilatory efficiency at the anaerobic threshold. This is the ratio of minute ventilation to carbon dioxide production and essentially tells us how efficient gas exchange is during exercise. We generally look at the ventilatory efficiency at the anaerobic threshold because this is when minute ventilation increases quite markedly relative to workload. So it's a useful variable in the assessment of dyspnea. Additionally, this variable is also uh, independent of patient effort, so again, very reproducible. In general, a ratio of 
a greater than 34 signifies ventilatory inefficiency. However, with regard to perioperative risk, a recent systematic review found that a ratio of less than 41 to 42 is associated with lower risk of perioperative complications. Uh, now, as a final note, in terms of predicting perioperative complications, the positive predictive value of these CPET variables, uh, though they've been established, is actually somewhat poor, but the negative predictive value is excellent, which basically means that if a patient performs poorly on CPET, they may or may not be at increased risk of postoperative complications. But if a patient performs well, that is, they achieve a VO2 peak of greater than 14 to 15, an anaerobic threshold of greater than 11, and ventilatory efficiency at AT of less than 41 to 42, then we can be pretty confident that they have moderate to good functional capacity, they're low perioperative risk, and would probably not benefit from further cardiac or pulmonary function testing. In your practice, if patients have had a, a poor CPET result, are you likely to then carry out further functional capacity assessments? It depends on what the CPET indication was. It may have been to measure true functional capacity and determine if there's any occult cardiorespiratory disease, or it might have been for the purpose of risk stratification. So if the patient had poor performance on CPET, then I guess the next step would be to look at the other variables that can isolate organ dysfunction, such as dyspnea due to a cardiac cause, dyspnea due to a pulmonary cause, and see if there are any further investigations um, required down that path. If it was done purely for risk stratification purposes, we can't just use one CPET variable to, to say objectively what the risk is. Um, but what is actually quite helpful is to look at what the CPET um, variables are in the context of the patient's age, comorbidities, the type of surgery they're undergoing, and that can aid in risk stratification and informed consent to both the patients and the families. Great, thank you. And I guess if we move on from CPET, because it provides a direct measure of these three variables, um, you discuss a little bit about the six-minute walk test and the incremental shuttle walk test, which we can use to indirectly estimate the VO2 peak and the anaerobic threshold, which you have you know, told us about already, the effort-independent effort measures. Um, would you be able to tell us a little bit more about these tests? You know, it's in times of limited resources, is it going to be appropriate to use these estimates rather than direct measurements um, via CPET, depending on, I guess, the question we're asking? Yeah, so um, so firstly, with respect to using the six-minute walk test or the, the incremental shuttle walk test to estimate VO2 peak and anaerobic threshold, in short, we, we currently don't have any validated methods or equations for estimating these CPET variables in surgical patients. Now with the six minute walk test, uh, there has been a, a small study done of, of 110 surgical patients that found that the six minute walk test had poor sensitivity, but good specificity in, pre, in predicting VO2 peak and anaerobic threshold. However, a sub-study of the uh, MET study that was done, um, and this sub-study sub comprised 567 patients, found that there was a poor correlation between the six-minute walk test and VO2 peak and anaerobic threshold. 
with the incremental shuttle walk test, again, the data here is lacking. Uh, there's a small study of about 50 surgical patients that found that the incremental shuttle walk test predicted VO2 peak of greater than 15 and anaerobic threshold of greater than 11 with good positive predictive value, but poor negative predictive value. Um, unfortunately, however, the incremental shuttle walk test has not been evaluated in larger studies with respect to estimation of CPET variables. So, I mean, what I would take away from this in short is that we probably shouldn't be using the six minute walk test or the incremental shuttle walk test to try and estimate CPET variables and then assess perioperative risk based on these estimates. There's probably better evidence for estimating perioperative risk directly based on the distances achieved in the six minute walk test or the incremental shuttle walk test. To answer your second question about when it's appropriate to use these tests as an alternative to CPET, really the most important factor governing this decision is cost and availability of resources. In centres with limited availability of CPET, the six minute walk test and incremental shuttle walk test are certainly very reasonable alternatives as they're, they're simple and they're inexpensive. The challenge though is knowing what thresholds signify low or high perioperative risk and when to refer on for further investigation. For the six minute walk test, based on the findings from the MET sub-study, a distance of greater than 510 metres suggests a greater probability of disability-free survival at 12 months following surgery. So further tests of cardiorespiratory function are probably not warranted. And this same study found that a six minute walk distance of less than 370 metres predicted a reduced chance of disability-free survival. So this might be considered a threshold to prompt further investigation. So the, the 370 and the 510 um, metre cutoffs or turtiles are the most evidence-based cutoffs that we have to date. Now, interpretation of the incremental shuttle walk test for perioperative risk assessment is more challenging because we only have small studies of 100 or so surgical patients. And furthermore, the thresholds that have been established uh, seem to vary based on the surgical cohort. So at this stage, the evidence from small studies suggests that a distance of 400 metres or more is associated with a lower risk of perioperative complications and further investigations are probably not indicated. And a distance of less than 250 metres probably suggests increased perioperative risk and the need for further investigation. Uh, now, I just want to finish with one important point where, um, unlike CPET, where, as you mentioned, the interpretation of the nine panel plot is, is quite complex, but it can be very informative and help delineate the cause for exercise limitation. However, poor performance in the six minute walk test or the incremental shuttle walk test doesn't inform us of the underlying cause. So these patients may still require referral for further tests such as CPET or cardiac stress testing to identify the cause for exercise limitation. In our world with aging populations, limited resources and a need for quick yet accurate risk stratification, it seems like. So it's, it's a difficult question, isn't it? It's difficult to identify when to use which particular test to risk stratify, especially when when time and resources are limited. But your your kind of explanation um, gives us a bit more of an idea of how to go about this. I guess my 
last question for you would be a little bit more of a daily kind of clinical application. Which methods of subjective and objective pre-op assessment tools do you use in your daily clinical work? Um, and do these change for a 40-year-old ASA2 patient to an 80-year-old ASA3 patient? Um, and does it, it, it would clearly depend on the surgery that we're having as well, but it would be interesting just to know what you use on a daily basis. So to answer your first question with regards to the choice of subjective and objective methods, for initial bedside or subjective assessment of functional capacity and risk assessment, the Duke Activity Status Index, or DASI, is certainly the gold standard method, as it's the only one to date with a validated questionnaire that has been studied in a, in a large trial. Uh, it provides a very holistic measurement of functional capacity, as well as indirectly evaluating cognition and, and functional independence and some of the constructs that are actually um, evaluated in, in frailty scores. And we now, importantly, we now have an evidence-based threshold of a DASI score of 34 for identifying individuals at increased risk of post-operative cardiac complications. However, the risk assessment that's provided by DASI based on that cutoff is very binary. And to date, we don't have a method or a, or a risk model that can incorporate functional capacity to quantify perioperative risk. For instance, to tell us that there's a 65% risk of post-operative myocardial injury or 30-day or mortality. Now, the decision to use objective methods, specifically CPEP, the six-minute walk test, or the incremental shuttle walk test, is a little bit more complex. And with the exception of lung resection, we currently don't have any clear preoperative guidelines or algorithms for the use of, of objective methods, and, and particularly when they're actually indicated. So in deciding the need for objective testing, we need to consider, uh, importantly, resources and availability, as you mentioned, uh, and the individual's likely perioperative risk based on our subjective assessment. Now, this, this perioperative risk that we assess needs to consider, as a minimum, the patient age, comorbidities or ASA class, the functional capacity, and the type of operation. And for me, an objective method, you know, ideally, ideally CPAP, would be indicated in the following instances. So firstly, where there is suspected poor or unknown functional capacity on subjective assessment. Second, as I mentioned for, for risk stratification, CPEC could be used to help decide the appropriateness for surgery. Uh, now, outside of major lung resection, we don't have any prohibitive thresholds for such, uh, as such a VO2 peak, but there are CPEC variables that can be considered in the context of the patient's overall health status to help make an informed decision about surgery. Uh, now, finally, I just want to mention also that the use of CPET for prehabilitation is, I mean, that's a different type of assessment, but nonetheless has evolved rapidly over recent years. Now, to answer your second question about the choice of assessment methods based on patient age and ASA class, this requires a, a bit of clinician judgment as to the likelihood of poor functional capacity, coexistent cardiorespiratory disease, and the perceived risk of postoperative complications. For the 40-year-old ASA2 patient, if the DASI score suggests poor or unclear functional capacity, then the decision for further tests such as CPET 
would be guided by the extent of the operation, as well as underlying risk factors and the likelihood of occult cardiac or respiratory disease. For minor surgery, I certainly would be less likely to refer for further testing, unless I suspected an active cardiac condition. But for moderate to major surgery, particularly in the setting of multiple risk factors for cardiorespiratory disease, I would certainly have a lower threshold for referring for further testing. As for the 80-year-old ASA3 patient, there certainly is a greater chance of cardiorespiratory disease, and factors such as cognitive decline and, and musculoskeletal conditions may mask worsening cardiac or pulmonary disease. So in this cohort, I would certainly have a lower threshold for referring for an objective test of functional capacity, particularly before major surgery. Uh, however, lastly, there's, there's just one thing I want to point out, particularly when using CPED or the six-minute walk test to assess functional capacity in this, in this particular patient cohort. Interpretation of these objective methods can be quite challenging in the context of cognitive conditions, frailty, musculoskeletal conditions. So in these instances, I would actually consider other tests such as pharmacologic cardiac stress testing. This has been a very brief run through um, of your excellent articles, Dr. Silva Poulet, on the subjective and objective pre-op assessment of functional capacity. I would urge our, read, our listeners and our readers to visit www.bjed.org where they can download these two articles and read in depth about the um, research that Dr. Silva Poulet has been doing as well as her advice and information about how to risk stratify patients, something we do every day. Thank you, Dr. Silva Poulet. Uh, thank you, Dr. Shah, for having me.